T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, June 19th. 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer, and coming up on today's show, we're going to speak with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hill Vets, about the latest and greatest issues facing veterans on Capitol Hill. Might also chat a little bit about the Hill Vets House. It's a fellowship that they offer to bring veterans to Washington, D.C. to teach them the inner workings of our nation's capital and hopefully get them onto the staffs of Congress people or other full-time careers in politics in Washington, D.C. so that more veteran voices are heard. We are also going to talk to DraftKings. What's that you say, DraftKings? I know about them. Of course you do. They're one of the behemoths when it comes to daily fantasy sports. They're also now rushing to the forefront to help out veterans, specifically to get them trained in coding and other things when it comes to the tech industry. We're going to talk to them about why they think veterans are a good fit for the tech industry and why they've decided to start this program to help out veterans, not just with the goal of getting them to work for DraftKings, hopefully some of them will, but just to get them prepared and into that tech job market. So all of that coming up on a great Tuesday show and it kicks off now as we welcome back Jake Super Producer Hughes from a short absence from the program. We missed you on Friday and yesterday, Jake. I bet you did. I bet you were just just downtrodden and disheartened without me. I was, although uh, it was uh, also cathartic to just be able to talk trash about you for two full days. The first half hour of the last two days shows, Friday and Monday, were just, uh, you know, let's talk about Jake. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> hey, no such thing as bad publicity. You were doing some family stuff. Had a good long weekend, I hope. Yep, had a great time. It was my niece's first birthday. Happy birthday, Jake's niece. Of course, she's not Of course, she's not going to remember anything, but it still meant a lot no. to my sister that I could be there for it. Yeah. And uh, it was good to see, just good to see family get a little break, you know, I just get to see them at some point before Christmas break, so. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I haven't been on any kind of vacation since last August, I think it was. I went, taking a couple <laughs> days here and there, and uh, and we have gone up to see family. We were just up a couple weekends ago, and this past weekend, saw my father-in-law on Father's Day. He lives about an hour away, so not that far, but first birthdays are interesting. We had my son's first birthday at the VFW post in Huntington, Long Island, post 1469. Uh, the, the guys there, my postmates at 1469, allowed us to use the facility free of charge. All we had to do was pay for the catering, and then, of course, uh, the bar was just a regular bar, so people could get what they wanted to drink and all that. And, it, yeah, it is more for the parents and the mothers in particular than it is for the children because my son has no recollection of his first right. birthday party. He uh, was dressed up in an adorable little Dr. Seuss-themed outfit. It was a Dr. Seuss-themed party. Had a bunch of my friends come out, her friends, family, all that stuff. Yeah, it was a good time. I remember that. Yeah, and it's important for me because, I mean, this is just a personal thing, but I have uh, three uncles. I have two on my mother's side and one on my father's side. And the two on my mother's side, I can count on two hands the number of times I've seen them in my life. Wow. Yeah, so I want to make sure that even though I'm far away, I want to be part of my niece's life. You yeah, know? 
That's no, that's definitely important. Me, I've got more uncles and aunts than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> my mother was the second youngest of six. My father was the oldest of six. And uh, out of those two families, out of the 12, 10 of them are still with us. So, you know, I get to see aunts and uncles almost every time I head up there. Sometimes I run into people and I'm like, oh, hey, are we related? Maybe. You never know. Um, yeah, it's, it's always good to be able to, especially when you're far away. And of course, being in the military, we know all about that, where I was stationed overseas for over half of my military career, where I was in Iceland, Italy, Greece, Guam, Afghanistan. When you're in those places, it's harder to get back, particularly Guam, man. I was I actually met a guy uh, saw a guy with one of those. Have you seen these on social media? I'm sure you have because you look up veteran stuff when they're trying to sell you different T-shirts. And there's the one that says like DD214 alumni. Yeah, I saw a guy at the pool at our complex wearing one of those like DD214 U.S. Air Force went over and said like, hey, I got one of those. I don't have the shirt, but I got the piece of paper. Turns out he's uh, Chamorro. He's from Guam originally. And he was like, you were stationed in Guam. I never meet anybody who even knows where Guam is. And we were talking about it. He hasn't been there in 15 years. Oh, wow. He's got a wife and uh, two children. They have, the wife and kids have never been to Guam. The kids are all under under 15. And was talking to him and then later on talking to his wife about it. It's the, the cost and the time of getting there. It's just too much. I mean, if you go, it's like you want to stay for a long time because you're paying, well, geez, let's see, back in 2000. 10, I guess, when I came back on leave, the one time that I left uh, left Guam on leave was for uh, the 4th of July, actually. Uh, one of my favorite holidays, if not my favorite holiday, because you get to spend time at the beach, it's warm, everybody's having a good time. It cost me somewhere around $2,500 round trip. Wow, and that's just airfare. That's just airfare, and it takes you a long time. So to fly back from Guam, um, flying on, I think it was Delta who I flew on, I had to fly to Okinawa, had an eight-hour layover in Okinawa, or not Okinawa, Osaka. I'm sorry, I'm saying the wrong place. Flew to Osaka, Japan, eight-hour layover, and then to Los Angeles, I think, or Seattle, one of the two, and then on to New York from there. When I was in Japan, I, I guess, didn't bring any cash with me because I assumed, that's eh, all right, I'll just use my card at the airport and everything. Well, in Japan, that's not really an option in a lot of places, and then none of them took uh, my visa that I had there at the Osaka airport, and there was no place to get cash. There was no teller machine, so I had eight hours. I was starving. I was exhausted. I had uh, no money. I had no ability to get anything. There's restaurants <laughs> and bars, and I'm like, boy, it would be nice to sit down and have a, have a Suntory right now or something like that. Couldn't do it. So I ended up calling the airline, which, again, I believe was Delta. It may have been American. I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. They ended up sending um, a lovely young lady up to meet me, and they actually got me uh, a pass to leave the airport. They got me a, um, oh, what do you call it when they allow you into the country? A visa. I got a 30-day visa to leave the airport for like six hours. They were like, well, you can go to the, there's a, a cash machine. If you get on the train from the Osaka airport, which is on a man-made island off the coast. So I got on the train. I went into the city. I walked around. I rode on a giant Ferris wheel. I went to a mall. I just saw everything I could in the span of you know, whatever, six, seven hours that I had to do that and uh, and then came back on. But yeah, it's a long trip, man, to get to Guam on military flights where they're doing everything the cheapest they can. I believe they flew me from New York to Houston to LA to Honolulu to Guam. And it took something like 28 hours to get yeah, there. That sounds about right. So when you're on leave, here's the other thing you take leave to come home and you're paying, you know, up to close to $3,000 for your plane ticket. 
you then have to add in the fact that you're losing two days just for travel. So you may take, you know, 10 days of leave. It's actually eight days that you're going to get to spend with your family about that. Um, and it's just stinks. So yeah, my, my, uh, my neighbor that I met, my new friend, my new air force veteran friend, uh, who's, uh, uh, living up in the same complex as us. He and his family are like, yeah, we, maybe we're going to retire to there, but until then it's not that likely we're going to go back because for a family of four, they were saying it would be like $13,000 to fly a family of four out to Guam, which is just, it's insane. And it explains why the guy hasn't been home in 15 years. And despite the fact that he clearly really wanted to, it's just financially not feasible at the moment. Just one of those things that happens. Here's another thing that happens. Yeah, I remember talking about this story. Jake, do you remember the gentleman who pretended to be a three-star army general and hired a helicopter to impress a lady <laughs> down in North Carolina? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, so this guy, his name is Christian DeGruy. Here's the story, essentially. There was a woman who worked at the SAS Institute, contractors essentially, in Cary, North Carolina, and to impress her, to make an impression on her, he chartered a helicopter bought a military battle uniform. That's how it's being described by Army Times. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Uh, and flew and landed on like a field on the campus of this company. Security came out. And we're like, what are you doing? And he said, hey, I'm just here to uh, pick up a female employee to take her to Fort Bragg for a classified briefing authorized by the president. Okay. Well, most security guys who are working at places like that, if not most, certainly a lot of them, have a military background and something didn't seem right. It was a civilian helicopter with a civilian pilot. Why would that be what's flying a three-star general from Fort Bragg over to there? Turned out he didn't go to Fort Bragg, of course, because he wasn't a three-star general. He was not in the Army at all. They flew around in a circle for a while and then landed. And when they landed, the security had uh, called the police and the police came up. Well, it looks like he is going to plead guilty to impersonating an army <laughs> officer uh, and will concede that he was sane at the time. So that was part of the plea deal. Like, you can't say that you were crazy. Uh, it just, you know, appears maybe he was uh, a little bit in love or in lust or doing something like that. But, yeah, very, very fascinating story. And I remember when we talked about this saying... Almost, you almost want to say like, you know what? Just give the guy a slap on the wrist and let him yeah, go because he, he, went, through, effort, he went through all this effort to impress the lady. But it did remind me of the whole stolen valor thing. And I remember coming back from Afghanistan shortly after I got back and got out of the Navy, being at a bar in my hometown of Stamford, Connecticut. And uh, there was a young guy chatting up some ladies and talking about how he was in Afghanistan. And I heard that and it's like, oh, hey, man, you were in Afghanistan. Where were you? He was like, yeah, man, I was in the real stuff. Baghdad. <laughs> and I just looked at him. It's like Baghdad, Afghanistan, huh? And he was like, "Yeah, man, yeah, Baghdad, man. Not in the green zone either." Like, blah blah. The guy had uh, done like half of his research to pr basically claim to be a veteran and uh, didn't complete the other half of the puzzle. So I called him out on it, and uh, in front of the ladies, he lost that chance because I was very irritated. Yeah. One of my buddies who was on the other you know, side of the bar too. I once got challenged for stolen valor. Really? Like someone thought I was stolen valor because I was wearing uh, my riding vest, which has a couple patches on it and stuff, like, you know, to wreck my military career. Yeah. And this guy came up to me in a mall because I was on my motorcycle and he had his cell phone up. And I'm like, what's this guy doing? He walks up, hey, man, so you're airborne? I go, yeah, I could have my airborne patch on there. Goes, yeah. Oh, so where'd you drop? Any combat drops? I said, nope, five jump chump. <laughs> and he kind of made him stop because you think most people will claim, oh, yeah, I dropped into the, into the stand, man. He goes, oh, well, okay, well, you were a tanker, so how could you have been airborne? 
well, no, I was a tanker first, then I reclassified and did it while I was a drill sergeant. And this guy just started blustering, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. and walked off. I've never had anybody uh, try to call me on anything because I have the same thing. My, you know, we're, we're uh, nerdy bikers, you know, we're just typical vets, you know, we're just brosif and brosifine just out there doing, doing what we do. Wait, which one got, of us is brosifine here? Eh, pick whatever one. I'm kind of prettier. So, you know, I guess it'll be me. Um, <laughs> you know, I have some military stuff on Like I have uh, all stuff that I wore. I didn't buy it. Well, that's not true. I have two things that were given to me by my command in Afghanistan when I left. Um, uh, which are two like silly patches that say like Afghanistan veteran and Afghanistan fighter with uh, the Punisher skull on one and a, a pit bull head on the other. They gave those to me. So I put them on there when I left. I got some other stuff I got to put on, including the veteran enhancement project patch. We just had those guys on yesterday. Fantastic group that's building uh, adaptive bikes for wounded warriors. We're going to head out to where they are in Frederick, Maryland uh, eventually and shoot a little video up there so people can see what they're doing instead of just hearing about it. But anyway, I have like my uh, my cover device on the front, which is uh, Petty Officer First Class with the gold stripes because I uh, never got caught for anything in 13 <laughs> years of service. That's the, the way to do it. And then other unit patches on the back. No one's ever called me on that. Although when we were at Rolling Thunder, there was a guy who was like, what's the deal with you? I was like, what do you mean? Because one of the things I have on the back was my Petty Officer First Class uh, ACU rank that would be on the front of my uh, of my blouse, essentially, in the uniform. And he was like, well, it's army colors, but it's a Navy rank. I was like, yeah, I was in the Navy, but I was attached to the army. Oh, okay. And then, like that was the end of it. <laughs> but it's funny you bring that up too, because just yesterday I was um, driving to pick up my son from school and saw a motorcycle in front of me that had the Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor on both. It had hard bags on the sides. So, you know, when you see a, a motorcycle that has the built-in uh, compartments uh, by the rear wheel, on the back of those, it had the Eagle Globe and Anchor on each one. And I see it's got all sorts of other Marine Corps stuff on the guy's bike. He's wearing... Um, camouflage you know pants and a vest with no sleeves no shirt under it or anything combat boots and all that stuff so i'm looking at it it caught my eye as it usually does i check out motorcycles as i'm driving around uh, one to know that they're there and two to see like oh, what's this guy got going on so all this marine corps stuff and then he's got a whole bunch of patches on the back of the vest the one that's closest to me near his right shoulder is a rank insignia but here's the weird thing jake it was an E7 insignia for the Army. It huh. was a Sergeant First Class because it was green and gold, and the Marine Corps doesn't wear the green and gold stripes. Right. I and mean, that's just, that's, that's not their thing. It's either red and green or uh, the red and gold, essentially. Those are the two options that you have uh, with the different Marine Corps uniforms. So that kind of caught my eye, and I was like, what's this guy doing? Why would a Marine who's got all these Marine logos all over his bike and all over his vest, why would he have an Army Sergeant First Class rank on his vest? It didn't make sense, but I also can't say, that, ah, stolen valor, he's a fraud, he's a phony. Yeah, he may be, or he could have been someone that served in two branches. I know plenty of people who did that. I got a yep. buddy of mine who was uh, a sergeant, I believe, when he got out of the Marine Corps and is now a warrant officer in the Army and flying helicopters. Yeah, my old uh, supervisor at the Old Guard at uh, Fort Myer was a Marine when he first came in. 
Yeah, and there I served with people who served in the Army and the Navy, uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy. Didn't meet too many people who served in the Air Force in another branch. I can only recall like one or two vaguely. Because why would you want to leave the Air Force? Oh, I know. It's a delightful place to be. I mean, listen, each and every one of us makes fun of the Air Force and the other branches, and each and every one of us is a little bit jealous of the way (laughs) the Air Force gets to live. And the fact that like when I was in Iceland, the airmen that were there, one had a shorter tour of duty. Theirs was one year. Ours was 18 months to two years. Uh, They got isolated duty pay, and we did not. Part of that was because they weren't allowed to bring their families there. It was, uh, you know, it was a unaccompanied tour. I only went to one unaccompanied tour, and that was uh, Suda Bay Crete. And some people still brought their families over because you got a pretty decent BAH. You lived out in town. You could get a nice big place for not too much. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, seeing that guy with the, uh, the the vest on yesterday with, like, Marine Corps, the, the desert, Marine Corps desert camo digital uh, uh, pants on and the boots, but then had the Sergeant First Class insignia on his vest, it kind of confused me where I was like, eh. I would think that most Marines are going to be very specific on what they're going to put on there, and it's going to be Marine Corps related. Uh, It could have been that he served also in the army. It could have been, uh, you know, a friend of his, it could have been from a friend of his rank or something like that. You don't know, but it certainly piqued my curiosity. And if I gotten the chance, I would have liked to have been like, Hey, what's the deal with that? Because you know, you, you ask those questions sometimes. Speaking of the stolen valor, sometimes it's not, lunatics pretending to be in the military like we've seen and like we've talked about in the past with John Lillier and all those people. Sometimes it's people just embellishing their service. Like a a Navy yeoman who's claiming to be a Navy SEAL. Like a guy who did four years as a bosun's mate in the Navy, but then when he's at his uh, veteran career, he's telling everybody, yeah, man, I was doing secret black ops stuff. You can't find out about it, Man, so don't I, look into it. I don't understand why people still pretend to be SEALs. You got people like, uh, oh, gosh, Don what's Shipley. his name? What? Yeah, Don Shipley. <laughs> out there. I could, it he will find you. <laughs> yeah, they will find you, and it's like so many people have been outed as fake SEALs. I mean, pretend to be Delta or something, because no one knows anything about them, yeah. so you can claim whatever you want. We've been doing this show for over a year now. We've probably talked to 10 Navy SEALs on it. We've talked to one Delta Force operator, one in a year. They're not as uh, well known. They're not as uh, not as popular. They're not as vocal about what they do. They are the quiet professionals, even more so than the Green Berets. Of course, they are uh, you know a, an extension of Army Special Forces. Right. They're similar to SEAL Team Six and. SEAL Team 6, with the exception of a few guys who are on the Bin Laden raid, you typically don't hear too much about from them either. Most of the guys you hear from are from the other teams. Um, Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. But here's an interesting story being reported by Military Times, and that is that a historian for the Wisconsin American Legion has resigned after the organization said he embellished his military service. His name is Howard Gordy Cluel, and he stepped down last week from the Legion after apparently... His wife (laughs) told the TV station up there, yeah, he lied to me about his service and didn't actually serve in Vietnam like he said he did, which I had no idea. I thought that this was more of a recent phenomenon. It's not. It's just more recent that people have been able to be called out on it on a wide scale because of the internet and social media and people like Don Shipley who are more than happy to sit on camera and call you on the phone and be like, hey, here you're a Navy SEAL. So what bugs class are you in? 
if anyone ever calls you up and says like, oh yeah, I heard you were a Navy SEAL, what buds class were you in? And it's got that deep, gruff voice. It's probably Don Shipley, and you're probably uh, best off just coming clean or hanging up the phone and telling them, wrong number, this is not who you thought yeah. it was. <laughs> so apparently, uh, he claimed to be a Vietnam veteran, Special Forces veteran, and all of that stuff. Uh, it said that he was highly decorated, he got all this stuff. Turns out that he wasn't in Vietnam when he was in the Army. He was some sort of caseworker in Germany. <sighs> you just wonder. Like, dude, nobody's going to think any less of you if you just talk about what you actually did in the military. I don't go around telling people I was a Navy SEAL because I wasn't. I was a journalist, a mass communication specialist. I took photos of the real hardcore people. That was my job. Oh, you're hardcore? Hey, mind if I take a picture? That, that's me. That was what my job. I was that guy. Um, but you know what? People will think a lot less of you when you get caught out for making up all these shenanigans and nonsensical stories. And almost always, when it's someone who claims to be in special forces, one I've found that they typically are not going to bring that up to you unless uh, it's part of their business, unless it's like, you know, Eli Crane at Bottle Breacher. He talks about being a SEAL, and, and that's part of his business. It's part of what he does, and that's fine. There are other guys who are just doing whatever job they do afterwards. They typically don't start off like, yeah, I was a Navy SEAL. No. It might come up in conversation, or if you're talking to someone, they're like, oh, yeah, I was in the Navy. What'd you do? Ah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that kind of thing. They're, they're yeah. usually very unspecific. Because a lot of them don't want the fanboying or the crazy questions about like, oh, what'd you do? Where'd you go? Blah, blah, blah. You find that regularly. In these cases, the people typically are the ones to bring it up. Like, yeah, I was a Green Beret. What's going on? How you doing? Hey, Jim Johnson, Green Beret. What's going on? They will be the ones to initiate that conversation. And then if they figure out that they are speaking to a veteran who kind of knows what they're talking about, Listen, I wasn't in the Army, but I worked for the Army a few times through the show. I've gotten to know quite a few uh, members of Army Special Forces and other units. I have a cousin who was in the Ranger Battalions. I know a little bit about it, so I, I have a little bit of baseline knowledge. Start asking some questions. And if you start asking a guy like this questions about what he did, like, hey, uh, so, I mean, where's the documentation of that? Oh, no, it's a secret. Government's not putting it on my uh, on my DD-214 and stuff like that. As Don Shipley will tell you, and as he's told us right here on the show, if someone starts telling you about the secret squirrel stuff that they did, uh, it's, it's nonsense. Because one, the guys who do the secret squirrel stuff, and those guys do exist out there, they're not telling anybody about it. That's a part of their job is not to tell anybody about the different things that they're doing that are shrouded in secrecy. And two... Uh, if you are, you know, a Navy SEAL, like on team, I think Dom was on team two, guess what? Team two is on his DD-214, yeah. all the training stuff that he did. Many of his deployments, they're on his DD-214. He's like, listen, they're not hiding stuff from that. And, and if they are, then it's not something that anyone would ever talk about. So those are red flags to watch out for there. Also have an update on our old friend Hector Barajas, who, of course, has talked to Phil Briggs uh, several times, uh, done podcasts with him. Hector was a deported veteran who uh, is one of the ones who said, listen, man, yeah, I screwed up. I screwed up bad. He shot at a uh, an, an unoccupied vehicle. Thankfully, he shot a gun at it, discharged a weapon. I think there may have been some other charges in there as well. He was deported to Mexico and worked diligently over several years to try and get back to the United States, was recently presented with his citizenship, um, You know, did things the right way in trying to get back in. We've also talked about other deported veterans who still haven't taken any responsibility for their actions, like, oh, 
maybe if you had a couple pounds of cocaine that you were trying to sell and yeah. claim that you were set up and you didn't know it was in the briefcase. Like, oh, yeah, sure. You didn't know it was in the briefcase, just like that guy at the Wisconsin American Legion couldn't tell us about what was on his DD-214 and all that stuff. Um, he has now... And he talked to Phil Briggs about this, and you can go check it out, or Matt Sainsing as well about this. You can go check it out at ConnectingVets.com. He's going to the Dominican Republic because while I think most people think of Mexico as a place where most people are deported to because that's where they're from, and yeah, I think more immigrants are coming to the U.S. from Mexico than the Dominican Republic simply because of the fact that we share a border with Mexico. It's not an island. Also, a lot more people in Mexico than the Dominican Republic. But there are quite a few veterans who have been deported to the Dominican Republic as well. And uh, Hector Barajas is going down there to uh, basically find out their stories and make sure that, you know, the ones that uh, may deserve a second shot at citizenship maybe get that. So you can go check out that story and so much more on ConnectingVets.com. And we want to remind you, Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. It's connecting vets every day. It's what our team does. Each and every one of us knows what it is to put on that uniform every day. Just as importantly, we all know what it's like to take that uniform off for the last time. It's a big day when you no longer have to do that. Many of us stop shaving. Jake and I certainly did. 13 years where I had to shave every weekday. Yeah, the day I got out, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty much never shaving again. Yeah. It's only happened twice in the last seven years since I got out. Two or three times I think I've been clean shaven in the last seven years. So, yeah, very, very good stuff. All right, coming up later on in the show, Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hill Vets. We're going to talk to him about what's going on on Capitol Hill as well as the Hill House, the Hill Vets House, where they're bringing veterans in for a fellowship to learn about Congress and to learn about getting onto staffs and learn how DC works. Then we're also going to talk to DraftKings, one of the behemoths of daily fantasy sports, has a brand new program that's helping veterans get into the tech world for free. We're going to find out about that coming up right after this morning briefing. Back in a moment. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. That's our slogan, and it's what we do. Each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform. Just as importantly, they know what it's like to have taken it off for the last time and found you don't know exactly what you're going to do with your life, but you do know that you want as much information as you can possibly get to make the best decisions for your post-military careers. And that's what ConnectingVets.com is all about with audio, video, print, everything that you need to know about, that you'd want to know about that we think it'd just be pretty cool if you knew about. It's available right there for you. And, of course, on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is the Director of Global Public Affairs for DraftKings. Many of you, sports fans particularly, are going to be familiar with DraftKings, of course, as a a daily fantasy app that you can use to basically uh, enjoy your games in a little bit of an enhanced way, I suppose we can say. His name is James Chisholm and joins us now in the morning briefing. James, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great. Thanks for having me. So, wanted to talk to you about specifically DraftKings Tech for Heroes initiative. So, what can you tell me about Tech for Heroes? Where did that program initially come from for DraftKings? 
so Tech for Heroes is our inaugural corporate social responsibility initiative. And, and what it is, uh, is we're providing current and returning veterans free, comprehensive, high-tech uh, job skill training to help them either break into a career in tech uh, at an innovative company like DraftKings or to perhaps enhance their career, you know, help them. Uh, they might be in a position uh, and, the, you know, these sort of skills can help them further their career. What sort of skills are we talking about? What level of training are we looking at? Is this like entry level for people who've never done anything in the tech world before? Or is this for the people who might have a little bit more experience heading into it? Well, the great part about Tech for Heroes is that uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. We want to meet veterans where they are in their careers, either just leaving service or already have left and sort of moving along in their civilian careers. Uh, but the idea is to really provide them with the skills that tech companies like DraftKings look for. So, for example, in our sort of our pilot class, um, they'll be learning front-end web development. So HTML, CSS, uh, learning sort of how to build websites, the back end, what they need to know. Um, you know, but in, in future classes, what we want to do is, you know, depending on the community, depending on the population of veterans, um, sort of the job market, is cater the training to that individual community. And what is it about the veteran community that makes them attractive to DraftKings to have this program focus specifically on us? Well, I think um, a lot of things. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think we we certainly feel a responsibility um, to you know pay back the debt of gratitude we owe all service members. Um, and I should point out this actually this training is also open to the spouses because uh, I think we all know that uh, the sacrifice isn't just borne by those serving; it's also borne by their families. So, so this training is actually open to spouses as well. Um, you know, but. I think veterans make outstanding job candidates and employees. Um, you know, they are, they, they're able to adapt, move quickly. Uh, and in a company like DraftKings, where we're constantly innovating and iterating and, and pivoting, uh, that sort of flexibility and that ability to change and make decisions rapidly and, and change what you're doing is, is a great asset and skill to have. We're speaking with James Chisholm. He's the director of global public affairs for DraftKings, one of the giants of daily fantasy sports. James, when it comes to the veteran aspect of DraftKings, um, you know, when they go into this program, are they expected to then work for DraftKings afterwards, or are they looking at other businesses? How, how does it work when they finish up the program? Yeah. So, one of the realities that that in sort of developing this program is that. Well, DraftKings is a household name, especially if you have a sports fan in the house. Uh, you know, we're not a huge company. We're not Home Depot or Amazon who can pledge to hire thousands of veterans. Uh, but for us, we thought then it was almost even more important for us to do something. So there certainly will be employment opportunities for uh, veterans who go through Tech for Heroes with DraftKings. Um, but what we also do is partner with a national veteran serving organization called Vets in Tech, uh, which has a long track record of working with employers in the tech sector uh, from Cisco and Microsoft, Facebook and Salesforce, uh, so that even if a veteran goes through the DraftKings Tech for Heroes training, they may not end up at DraftKings, but we want, to end up, we want them to end up somewhere. Uh, and so we thought that was really important. We didn't want to just train them and sort of just walk away. We wanted to train them and then set them up uh, with the support they need to, to land jobs or to move forward in their careers.
One of the things uh, we think we have a great advantage to do is to grow and expand this program uh, through the involvement of our customer base. And so we're running regular charity contests, fantasy contests, uh, to help grow and expand this so we can offer the training in additional cities throughout the country. Uh, but we absolutely intend to, to bring it to cities and to communities across the country. And one of the things that was important for us, um, you know, again, while we're a household name, we don't have a big physical footprint. Uh, we really just uh, sort of have our offices in the Northeast. We have a small office in Florida. Uh, so this initiative is designed to be deployable pretty much anywhere around the country. Uh, so where we see interest, where we see a need, uh, we would do our best to fill that need and to, and to serve those veterans. What are the numbers that you're hoping to see uh, get into the program? Is there a limit at the start of Tech for Heroes as far as how many people will be accepted into it? And what are your hopes as far as for the future if there is a limit currently? There isn't a limit, and we did that purposely because um, we're growing as a company. You know, we're growing rapidly and quickly, and we didn't want to set a limit now as a company of this size when in a year or two we'll be much larger. Uh, so we don't have a, a limit. Um, but that being said, this year we'll probably train, um, you know, somewhere in, in a few hundred veterans, uh, and next year we'll grow a lot more. Uh, we're learning as we're doing this, and I think that's really important. Um, you know, we're hearing and getting feedback from, well, veterans who work at DraftKings, um, which have been instrumental in, in helping set this up. Uh, you know, their feedback, their insight um, has just been obviously critically important in this. But as we grow, you know, there might be times when we do an online course that could be open to a very large number. Others, when we do them sort of physically located, we try to keep the classes to 20, 30 people um, to ensure that the veterans are actually getting trained uh, and they're leaving with uh, some level of certification, uh, something official. So it's not sort of something to do casually. It's something we want them to leave with that they can put on a resume, they can put on their LinkedIn, uh, and it can help them uh, at that stage in their career and throughout. We're speaking with James Chisholm, Director of Global Public Affairs for DraftKings, one of the giants in daily fantasy, daily fantasy sports. James, when we talk about this training, who is it that's giving the training? I mean, are these uh, you know people that have worked for DraftKings and doing that? Uh, who are the people who are going to be teaching these veterans how to do this? So DraftKings employees and executives are absolutely involved in uh, informing and enhancing the curriculum. Uh, we're partnering, though, with certified trainers uh, at various locations around the country. Uh, and part of the reason we're doing that is because, as I mentioned, you know, we don't have a huge presence all over the country. Um, so while we love to do it ourselves, it just isn't something we, we can do at this point. Um, you know, so we do have certified trainers. Uh, training centers, um, and we're only using certified trainers. So it's, it, this is not something we're doing casually. We want the veterans to come in and get the very best training. Um, what I think is great for our employees, for DraftKings employees, is that we will be involved. They will be involved, um, you know, in mentoring veterans and helping them learn more about DraftKings and working in tech. Uh, we have our HR and recruiting team, which will help, you know, in terms of interview prep and resume writing. Uh, so we certainly envision this to be very involved from our employee end. And that's what, quite honestly, our employees expect. Uh, and, and that's what they want to do. We've had a great response so far. 
when we talk about these uh, the, the the training events that you are going to have for the people, as far as locations, I mean, people hear that you guys are in Boston and Florida, they might assume, well, I'm going to have to go up to Boston or Florida to get this uh, <laughs> no. Tech for Heroes training. Yeah. So where is this actually taking place? Uh, so we just launched the first one in Boston. We're going to be announcing the, uh, the next round of cities uh, in a few weeks. Um, but quite honestly, I mean, I, I think you can expect us to be prioritizing places where there are a large population of veterans. Um, you know, so, you know, I know we're certainly looking at places like Texas, um, you know, California, Florida. So we'll certainly be there, but that's why we're also looking to, as a tech company, to take advantage of, of that side of us. We want to be authentic to who we are. So we also think there are opportunities to get into, you know, smaller areas, smaller communities. Um, you know, there are veterans all over this country, and we won't be able to reach them. So we probably will be in the future offering online courses and online training um, to make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind. Uh, we, you know, we recognize we don't, I mean, to be very clear, you don't have to come to Boston for this training. Um, as much as, as Boston is lovely, and I live here and from here, it's a great city, please come visit. But, you know, we're going to come to you. Uh, DraftKings Tech for Heroes, the whole point is for us to come to you. And it might take us, you know, into next year to start really growing, but we'll get there eventually. That's our goal. That's our pledge. And that's our commitment. You know, James, being from Connecticut, I have to say Boston's it's okay. I don't know if it's, it's great. Okay. It's okay. I mean, I'm just, I, I want to say, I, and in I the summer and spring, in the wintertime, in the wintertime, right. no one needs to be in Boston. <laughs> no, I, I don't understand how, you know, I, I blame my parents really. They, they, they kept us here. Um, but no, it's, that's the whole, that really is what we want to do is, you know, we have a, we're a household name. We have an international brand, but we have a very small physical footprint, but we didn't want that to stop us from getting involved. Um, you know, as a, as a young company, you know, we're growing, but we're still very much a startup. We thought it was important our, and our founders thought it was important to not wait to try to do something like this. Uh, you know, we will grow and expand it, but there was no reason that as a young company, you know, we also shouldn't play a role uh, in this and not and have a responsibility for, you know, doing some good uh, and making a difference in, in people's lives. We thought that was really important. The process for people who are interested in this, a veteran out there who hears Tech for Heroes and hears all the information that you're giving out right now and says, that's the program for me. How do they go about finding out more information and taking the first steps Absolutely. and going through it? So the easiest way right now is you can always just email techforheroes at draftkings.com. And Tech for Heroes is all one word. Uh, we'll be announcing another round of training in the next few weeks, and we'll be promoting that heavily uh, on social media, through military and veteran outlets, media outlets, and getting the word out. Uh, and we will continue to promote this. It's not something we're going to promote this summer and then sort of in, and leave it. We're going to be promoting it every time we have a new class. We'll be reaching out to media in that area, reaching out to veterans organizations, um, you know, reaching out through state and local government to make sure that veterans are aware of it. Uh, and where there is a, a big demand, we will, we will stay. This is not something we're going to offer one class in one city and then leave. You know, if the demand is there, we will stay. Uh, and at the same time, if there's the demand for a higher level of training, you know, if someone completes sort of basic front-end web development and there's another course, uh, you know, we will absolutely do something like that as well. 
We've been speaking with James Chisholm. He's the director of global public affairs for DraftKings. James, one final thought for you. Why do you think that the tech industry and companies like DraftKings, of course, one of the major players in the world of daily fantasy sports, uh, why do you think that that is an industry that veterans should should consider for their post-military career? You know, I just think that there are so many opportunities at companies like DraftKings that probably aren't, uh, you probably don't realize it right away, sort of the, the, the depth and the breadth of, of job opportunities and careers here at DraftKings. You know, we have creative and accounting and marketing, project management, um, fraud, customer relations. Uh, and we thought it was important in, in a lot of ways to pull back the curtain on companies like, like DraftKings, on these tech companies. Um, while certainly we're training people in skills that, you know, certainly focus on some of the engineering side, there are great opportunities here, uh, which we think are a perfect fit for veterans. You know, one of our executives, our chief business officer is a veteran. Uh, you know, we have a veteran who works in our recruiting department, so which really helps in terms of, um, you know, I think that translation between what you did in, in the service and when you're applying uh, for, for sort of civilian jobs can be tough. Uh, so we're fortunate to have someone in our recruiting team who speaks that language, uh, which not all tech companies have. Um, you know, and we just think veterans, again, I think that they're a good fit for a dynamic, complex environment. Uh, we need to be thinking and doing, uh, and you have to be sort of mission-focused. And that's what everyone at DraftKings is, uh, and that's why we think it's a great place for veterans to work. One more time, James Chisholm, Director of Global Public Affairs for DraftKings. If people are interested in finding out more about the Tech for Heroes initiative, where do they go to do so, and how do they get in touch with you guys? Please email us at techforheroes at draftkings.com, and we will be in touch through media and social media promoting the program, uh, and we're always looking to talk to people. That was James Chisholm of DraftKings, specifically the Director of Global Public Affairs, talking about the Tech for Heroes initiative. Jake, when you hear about an organization like DraftKings, who even though you're not the biggest sports guy, the only sports you care about are you know, the Houston Astros when they win the World Series, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but you know of the company. I mean, their ads have been ubiquitous, and the daily fantasy sports is a huge industry. When you hear about a company like that working to get veterans into the tech industry, having a program like Tech for Heroes. How do you feel about that when you hear about these companies that they don't need to do this, but they want to do it? Well, it's a great sign that shows that the civilian market is finally becoming aware of how valuable veterans can be, and especially in a growing industry like the tech industry, where there's only going to be more jobs available in that. So try to get veterans involved in that is a really good way to give back. And doing this for free, essentially, giving them courses and coding and things like that. Uh, what I really liked hearing about it, of course, the fact that it is free, that they're not trying to make money off of veterans. That's, of course, one of the big keys in these things. Listen, some things cost money. I understand that when you go to college. But when organizations who have made a lot of money decide to use some of that money to help out various uh, subsets of the population, including veterans in this case, what I really liked hearing about that is that DraftKings isn't doing this with getting these veterans to work for DraftKings in mind. If they come to work for DraftKings, if there's jobs for them and they take them, well, fantastic. But if not, hey, they've helped these veterans get on their feet and get moving in their careers and also probably put a good taste in their mouth when it comes to DraftKings as far as uh, them providing these sort of programs. 
you being a gamer, and of course, Jake, if you go to ConnectingVets.com, you can see his coverage of E3, his extensive coverage of all the video game news there, because we know a lot of veterans are gamers. I'm one, although not as much as I used to be. I was playing um, uh, Elite Dangerous last night, a.k.a. Space Trucker, where I'm flying back and forth <laughs> silently between stations and just occasionally getting into space battles, but mostly uh, delivering supplies and things like that. It's a fascinating game, but you're a gamer as far as playing them. Have you ever considered actually getting into coding and starting to make apps or games or things like that? I have thought about it, but at the same time, I realized there's a lot of complicated math involved. Yeah. And math is my kryptonite. I I am dyslexic with numbers, man. Is that a thing? Dyslexic with numbers? I think so. <laughs> it must be. Well, it is for me because they get jumbled up in my head and I just can't do it. But, I mean, as far as... It would be interesting to be like a writer for a game to sort of help create these different worlds and stuff. But when you look at how games are made, it really is the tech guys, the the graphic designers, the yeah. artists, the uh, the renderers. These are the people that do the heavy lifting. Yeah. And you know what? Here's the other thing about coding. I think most people hear about coding and tech and stuff, and they think like, oh, God, I'm going to have to work on like the new Elder Scrolls game or something like that. It's going to be you know, working on these, these huge, expansive games and programs and stuff. Not necessarily. How about websites and how about apps? Do you have any idea for an app that could be valuable to you or something that maybe you'd, you'd like to see in the gaming world that you think could be helpful there? I'm sure if I really thought about it, I could. If you if you hadn't put me on the spot like this, I'm yeah. sure I could. But well, I off can, the top of my head, no. I can think back to a few that were made that were uh, you know kind of right beside games like Battlefield One, which of course was the World War One set, uh, wonderful first person shooter game, which did a great job of capturing how horrifying World War One was. I mean, yeah, it's an enjoyable game, but it's also one of those games, particularly in the single player mode, where you kind of lean back a couple of times and be like, oh, God, I can't believe that people actually had to go and do all of the things that are happening in this game in real life. That's kind of upsetting. But they had a great app secondary to the game where you could actually change the loadout of your soldier on your phone in between rounds and things like that. There are those things. And then, of course, there's apps like, well, DraftKings. I've done the daily fantasy sports thing. I've done the DraftKings thing. Not particularly good at it. I'm better at uh, choosing winners and losers overall in a game and point spreads. <laughs> Figuring out which individual player is going to have a good game is kind of a crapshoot. Like, I've won a few times on there. I've never played the big money games where you have to pay like $100 to enter in and stuff like that. But some of the uh, the smaller games, you know, I went on there. I think I got like... a. Uh, one of those things where they, they rope you in. They're like, hey, if you put $20 in, then we'll give you an additional 20 and that doubles your money. And then I just played until that was gone, and then I was kind of done with it. But uh, it, it's fun, and it was not simple. I don't want to say that because there's a lot involved when you're dealing with like NFL players and baseball players. Baseball's even more insane when it comes to daily fantasy stuff. Um, when it comes to all of those, the apps are... Certainly involves, certainly take a lot of work, and you certainly need to know what you're doing. But a simple idea like bringing fantasy sports to an individual day and separating it by, you know, different types of games and things like that, they've turned that between DraftKings and the other companies doing it, they've turned that into like a multi billion dollar industry that just came from the idea that a couple of guys had. And as, uh, as he was telling us in that interview, uh, of course, we were speaking with James Chisholm, the director of global public affairs for Gret DraftKings. 
they have a pretty small team. You know, they're not like a million people working at DraftKings. It's like an office in Boston, an office in Florida. I'll take the one in Florida, just at least in the wintertime. Yeah. <laughs> if I were working for DraftKings, that's what I would I would tell them. I'd be like, okay, uh, during the summertime, I will be at the Boston office. In the wintertime, I'm going to move down south to Florida. I'm yeah. going to be a snowbird and check yeah. out down there. But having a small crew, that kind of lets you know that if you have an idea for an app like that, but you don't have the technical know-how to do it, there is money to be made there. There is a career to be made there. And what, let's say you don't have an idea yourself. Like Jake didn't have one off the top of his head this time. If you went to the Tech for Heroes program that DraftKings is running, you'd be able to learn the baseline knowledge and then maybe go work for somebody else who does have that great idea. Yeah, and then to bring this back to video games because I like to stay in my own lane because <laughs> it's, it's what I know. It's nice and safe. But uh, you look at some of the most successful games on Steam, which is a, a video game buying service, right. and some of the most successful ones are these independent games, these indie games that have like a team of two to five people making the entire thing. Yeah. And so it really is an industry where you can get into it. And like you said, if you have a good idea and you got the skills to back it up, you can make bank. You can. And again, also there are, you need the tech people to go along with the idea people. I'm typically, uh, when it comes to, uh, as you said, like math and designing things, I'll come up with a great idea, but then I need somebody else to actually do it. <laughs> right. I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at that part of it. I'm good at the idea, not so much the technical execution when it comes to things like that. I remember being at a, a birthday party for a, a five-year-old, one of my friends, uh, one of my kids, little friends from school. And the father and I were talking about like virtual reality and he was an architect. So we were talking about how virtual reality would allow people to, uh, you know, an augmented reality specifically would allow people to put on the goggles and kind of design their house and go with the architect and kind of figure out what they want it to look like and what they want to build. We came up with like seven great ideas in the space of a few minutes, but then both of us were like, <laughs> do you know anything about virtual reality? Uh, no. How about augmented reality? I barely know anything about my own reality. However, if there was someone out there who was, uh, you know, knew how to code for VR and stuff like that, take our ideas, we could be billionaires today because this was like a month ago. So by now, we could already be billionaires, have people investing in us. Uh, no, because neither of us has the technical knowledge. But me being a veteran, that means I could go through that Tech for Heroes program with DraftKings for free. Just had the, you know, the first one scheduled in Boston. As, as James told us, there's going to be announcements coming out on further cities that they're going to be taking place in across the country. Another thing I liked hearing from him, Jake, was that if it is very popular in, let's say, your hometown of Houston, let's say they go down there. Houston's got a big tech industry down there, tech, medical, and gas, basically. That's yep. what Houston's all about. If they go down there and there's a bunch of veterans, there's also a huge veteran population in Houston. If they go down and it's really popular, guess what? They're going to keep doing it there. They're not just going to say, well, you missed out on this one. They're going to do it as many times as they need to in a certain market, which is also very good to hear because oftentimes you'll, you'll see... I don't know, some program saying like, yeah, we're doing one in uh, Los Angeles on July 23rd, and then we're going to be in Seattle on August 14th. Well, when are you coming back to Los Angeles? Oh, we're not. <laughs> July is your one shot for doing this in Los Angeles. So good to hear that DraftKings is doing that. And also... You know, a company that's in the business of making money is also now getting into the business of giving back to the community, and in this case, specifically, the veteran community with Tech for Heroes. So go check out Tech for Heroes at DraftKings.com. And of course, as James told you, you can contact them directly. 
Find out about it, and there will be upcoming announcements. We got an announcement now. Justin Brown from Hill Vets is coming in just a couple of moments. You're listening to the morning briefing. Eric Dame, JQ's back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Tuesday, June 19th, 2008 edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com is your website. We're connecting vets every day. That's our slogan because it's what we're doing. And each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and just as importantly, knows what it's like to take it off for the last time. And that's why they are out there in our newsroom working diligently every day to bring you the news that you need to know, that you should know, that you should want to know, and that we think it would be pretty cool if you did know. So go check out ConnectingVets.com, I don't know, 15, 20 times a day. Or if you don't have that sort of freedom with your web browser, check us out on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest joins us every Tuesday, well, just about, when Congress is in session. He's in Washington, D.C., and that means he's going to be in our studio to talk about the latest and greatest and most important things affecting veterans on Capitol Hill. He's a Navy veteran himself, and he's the founder and CEO of Hill Vets, Mr. Justin Brown. Justin, good morning. How are you today? Pretty good. Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. You're you're much more casual today than normal. You've got a beautiful Boulder Crest retreat shirt on right, right now, established 2013 by Ken Falk and the team over there, and Dusty Baxley and everybody. Um, yeah, actually, I even got copies of their book. Yeah, today. Struggle Well, a book that I am currently in the process of reading. Uh, there, We interviewed Ken about the book, and there was apparently a mix-up with the people at my complex, and I didn't get the book until the day that the interview happened they were, afterwards. They were reading it. Yeah, maybe they were. They were chat. What's this struggle well about? If they're opening my mail, we've got a big problem over there. But uh, in the process of reading it right now, uh, and it is really a fantastic book that kind of outlines uh, what the Boulder Crest uh, strategy is, the struggle well process of helping veterans heal whether they are healing from physical wounds, mental wounds, and how uh, you know an outside-the-box approach uh, is helpful to so many veterans. And they've seen that out there at their facilities. Uh, first, the first one at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains in, in Virginia, and then the second one out there in Arizona in the desert, or I guess up in the hills. I don't know. I haven't been to that one. I've been to the one in Virginia, yeah. a beautiful place. But yeah, well, we should we should head out there. It's a pretty place. It's uh, south of Tucson. and I've never been to some, Tucson. Been to Phoenix. Go do some hiking. Phoenix and Sedona. Okay. How about you do the hiking and we get like a rickshaw and you can carry me around I'll and do all it. that stuff. I'll there you it. go. That Hey, it'll be an extra workout for you. Uh, most of Justin's working out is of the political variety when he's in D.C., when he's not out climbing mountains and cliffs in Utah, as you'll see on social media if you find him on there. But there is a lot going on and something that we haven't talked about that much recently because there hasn't been the uh, the big story like there was with Ronnie Jackson when his whole candidacy for Department of the Secretary of the VA was underway. Robert Wilkie has apparently been nominated, or has he? Because as I understand it, Justin, there's not been much of the official movement that needs to take place to install him as Secretary of the VA. So where do we stand with potential VA Secretary Robert Wilkie? Yeah, apparently, oddly enough, um, at least in terms of, of the norm of uh, a Senate 
uh, uh, or a presidential president's potential appointee, uh, their paperwork is generally sent to the Senate in pretty short order, and this helps them go through um, and and do their diligence in terms of who is the nominee, uh, what are some of the things that we need to worry about, what are some of the things that you know we we will want to ask this uh, potential candidate in consideration of their Senate confirmation, because mm. at the end of the day, it's the Senate that ultimately says yay or nay, right? And so part of that um, is the president send, sending their paperwork, their package saying, hey, this is our nominee. This is who we would like to be uh, the next secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, here's the information that we have with regards to them. The Senate then takes that information. They start to do their due diligence. And oftentimes they'll come back with additional questions. Uh, to, to, to my knowledge, none of that paperwork has yet to be, have been received. Um, so pretty, pretty interesting considering, you know, I, I don't know where the issue is here because, you know, Robert Wilkie is a previous political appointee. Right. Uh, I would think that, that that part of this would actually be pretty easy. I think where they may be running into some, some challenges is with uh, the whole situation whereby, um, you know, he was, he was acting. Uh, secretary and then um, you know he was in a different political role at the Department of Defense before being placed there and and if there are any um, potential legal issues in terms of how this appointment uh, occurs I I don't actually know the answer to that right um, but there certainly is you know the, some flags you know that are out there in terms of why has that not happened yet he was the under te- undersecretary of defense for personnel and readiness, I believe, or manning and readiness, whatever the official title is, uh, prior to serving as acting VA secretary and kept that job while he was serving as acting VA secretary. In fact, he signed off on the move to allow alcohol to be served at, or to be sold. I should say not served. They're not opening up bars in the exchanges, but uh, they're going to be selling um, alcohol in the commissaries now, which, of course, used to be separate. If you wanted right. alcohol, you had to go to the exchange. If you wanted groceries, you had to go to to the commissary they're working to be uh, uh to change that a little bit to bring some of the uh, commerce back to the commissary that they've lost recently he was the one who signed off on that so it was kind of uh working two jobs there as you said there were some legal questions i remember amvets originally bringing up the issue of this isn't how it was supposed to be he was not right. supposed to be put into that position there is a process in place the administration uh, as they've done in some in some cases kind of did their own thing uh, there was a lawsuit filed by Vote Vets and other organizations that we've yep. talked to them about on this. Does it seem like they may have um, caused themselves this issue as far as having to look into any of the legalities of him going from acting to now full-time secretary? Uh, essentially, had they just gone through the way that it was set up to go, do you think it probably would have ended up being a smoother process? Uh, I mean, as a Monday morning quarterback, absolutely. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, but I think, uh, you know, Certainly, there's been a whole lot of flying by the seat of your pants in terms of the leadership situation at the Department of Veterans Affairs, yeah. um, as we've seen with you know the president's previous uh, proposed secretary, you know nominee for for secretary and Dr. Ronnie Jackson, um, as we've seen you know the whole Shulkin fallout and everything that that's gone into that. Um, so you know there has been a lot of I think consternation with regards to this. Uh, leadership vacancy, uh, how it's been handled, and how um, you know the administration continues to to deal with the leadership situation at VA. So, um, 
you know, could it have been different? Absolutely. I, I, I think the majority of the VSOs seem to be generally on board with having Secretary Robert Wilkie or yeah. proposed, you know, acting secretary, now not acting secretary. And now it's he's a back mouthful, to just right? deputary, de- yeah. deputy undersecretary yeah. for personnel and readiness. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, I, I think there tends to be some support there. I know from our advantage, our vantage point at Hillvets, you know, I mean, he was a, he's, he's a veteran. He was a former Hill staffer, um, you know, so we believe, you know, he's pretty entrenched in policy, certainly knows at least the DOD policy aspects, right. um, not as entrenched in the Department of Veterans Affairs per se, which, you know, tend to tend to be meshed together and people right. believe that, you know, generals naturally know veterans issues and that's 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 not a fact. No. Um, and that's also true of staffers who've been focused on military armed services policy issues for a decade uh, are not per se really up to speed on on veterans issues. With that said, I think in that brief interim uh, where uh, Robert Wilkie was acting secretary, he he certainly earned some 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 uh, respect and kudos from from you know a number of the veteran service organization leaders who who really otherwise uh, had probably not had any contact with him. So it's going to be be interesting to see how it works its way forward. My my gut says that there are some legal issues playing out behind the scenes in mm-hmm. terms of how they're going to make this appointment. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, they're being extraordinarily cautious in how they move forward so that they don't, you know, uh, gum this up before before they do bring it to the Senate, um, because that could just be a disaster if the Senate has to, to weigh in and deal with this as well. We're speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets, an organization keeping an eye on what's taking place on Capitol Hill, as well as getting getting veterans involved in the political landscape, getting them onto the staffs of congresspeople and government organizations so that veteran voices are heard there. Speaking of this uh, very interesting and very kind of confusing issue that's going on, with who is going to be secretary of the VA. We've been without one for months now. Uh, it's been, of course, you know, the nomination of Ronnie Jackson <laughs> didn't end so well. Turns out that there are uh, some reports of a discussion with a Democratic senator who the administration talked to about becoming the secretary of the VA, Senator Joe Manchin. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of, you know, throw some more interest into the the who's going to be the secretary of VA sweepstakes. Uh, apparently, uh, the administration approached Senator Joe Manchin uh, in what looks like an effort to clear the way for a Republican to potentially pick up that Senate seat. And that's what the Washington Post has, has reported a number of days ago. Um, it appears that he at least did some diligence in regards to considering uh, the spot uh, reached out to former Secretary Bob McDonald about the vacancy, and um, it looks like the former secretary warned him of uh, you know the VA becoming so deeply partisan uh, that running the agency would leave him open to quote uncomfortable scrutiny and pressure from the White House, particularly to outsource more veterans' medical care. Hmm. Um, so it doesn't look like something that the the senator ultimately considered. Um, obviously, you know, the, there's been a different selection in terms of moving forward, um, but certainly an interesting strategy. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin has been involved in uh, veterans issues and been on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee for quite a period of time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, West Virginia has a, a huge proportion of veterans, a huge proportion of their population is, is 
your military veterans. Um, you know, in fact, we used to joke that, you know, in West Virginia, you, you've got like more CBOX, which are VA outpatient clinics, um, you know, than, than any other state. I mean, you, mm. you, you just keep hitting them and running into them. And it, and it, and it seems to all be because of a former senator, Senator uh, Bird, who was the chair of the Appropriations Committee, and he just, <laughs> just kept getting them. Hey, yeah, appropriate some more over our way. Yeah, he just kept making it happen for his <laughs> veterans, and uh, there there are a lot of uh, uh, VA outpatient clinics in West Virginia. But um, you know, it's it their veterans are also very well organized, and and they hold their politicians accountable. And so it's no surprise that Senator Joe Manchin's been on VA committee, knows the issues right. for a long period of time, and. And, and frankly, that you know, he was he was approached as being a potential candidate for this. I think I think certainly the veteran community probably would have strongly supported that. Right. And for those who hear, you know, senator who's a Democrat being approached to run this is this bipartisanship uh, to an extent, but also he basically has disavowed his 2016 support for Hillary Clinton. Sure. Uh, there's some people saying that he may endorse Donald Trump for re-election. I don't know if that's going to happen, but the rumors out there. So, uh, you know, the political landscape is a difficult one to uh, pick up on exactly what's happening there. Um, with this case, with the secretary of the VA, it was a position that for a while seemed to be above the fray and was non-political. Now, uh, there's nothing that's not political within the uh, within federal government right now. And as Bob McDonald said, opening himself up to scrutiny, uh, taking that position from the White House, as well as from the enemies from the White uh, enemies of that's the right. White House as you go in there. I mean, you're going to be yeah. taking it from all sides. Who wants to do that? I suppose the positive that you could see from that is it's going to be someone who truly cares about veterans' issues, who would put themselves through the hell of getting you know hit from the left, hit from the right, hit from all sides. That could be something that works out in our favor if it's someone like Wilkie who cares enough to go through that process and to not just throw up his hands and say, eh, it's not worth it. Well, I think uh, former Secretary McDonald brought up the key point there, which is you know how how much of the proposed administrative water, uh, you know, is he willing to carry in terms of particularly in consideration of this notion of, of privatization? Um, you know, I think that the veteran service organizations uh, are, 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 are really uh, riding actually a very fair and what I would call policy practical um, approach, which, which may be Frankly, to their disadvantage, because they're 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 trying to ride the middle ground. Uh, they're getting pushed, you know, to 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 this notion of complete privatization, and they keep taking half deals that are closer to to um, you know, I think away from what they would ideally like to see the VA right. become. Um, but you know, there is no real strategy in terms of you know, especially with the, the the major VSOs, as to what do they want the VA to be. You know what. What what do the American Legion, DAV, VFW, AMVETS? What do they want the American? What do they want the Department of Veterans Affairs to be in five years? That doesn't really exist. So, uh, in lieu of that, what they get is they're 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 constantly reacting to proposals that are being pushed on them. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are bad deals, and then they're fighting back from bad deals and taking deals that maybe wouldn't be as good as 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 they could be if they really came up with a solid you know, five-year, 10-year strategy. What should the future of the VA look like? What should it have? How should it serve veterans? How does it deal with rural veterans? How does it deal with veterans that, you know, can't immediately get access to a VA? How does it incorporate private healthcare solutions to those veterans that need them? How do we deal with, 
you know, a shortage in specialty care if it doesn't exist in, in Las Vegas, Nevada, and there are no cardiologists and, you know, the, the badlands of Northern Nevada, you know, how do we answer some of those questions? But I think the best way that, you know, we may be able to approach something like that is by actually trying to sketch that out, see what we would like the VA of the future to be and, and, and take it from there. But what you really end up with here is, you know, uh, these secretaries are inheriting uh, a really, really tough position, which is you've got the, the veteran service organizations on, on, on one side who, you know, have a sense of when they'll say no or yes, but it's usually with regards to a proposal being pushed on them. Um, and then you've got, I think, a, a more calculated political agenda uh, over here, which is pushing towards privatization, you know, fundamentally sees VA and government health care as, as not a good thing. Um, and, you know, the, the, the secretary's caught in the middle of trying to create enough um, positive momentum and, and buy-in from the veteran service organizations to, uh, you know, get anything done without them all collectively saying no. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, frankly, political forces and some really big campaign spenders, uh, you know, like the, the, like the Koch brothers. Um, I guess now it's just the Koch brother mm. from what, I, from what I'm hearing, I guess the, the, one of the brothers was kind of pushed out into retirement. Um, you know, so, and then the secretary again is caught in the middle of, you know, how do I carry the water politically in terms of pushing towards privatization, not filling VA vacancies, um, you know, as kind of an overarching strategy to push more funding into um, the private sector. We're speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hill Vets, about issues over at the VA. And a recent report brought up some significant issues. When we talk about what we'd like the VA to be, I think one thing most of those organizations are behind is fully staffed, getting the VA actually having the people that they need to do what they're supposed to do. That recent report that came out last week, directors for 140 VA hospitals reporting a total of 3,068 staff vacancies that they're struggling to fill. They say there's a shortage of qualified candidates. They say they're unable to offer competitive salaries to the people who are qualified. That's kind of a problem. And that's something that, uh, let me ask you, is the salaries for the VA, are salaries for the VA, are those set by the VA? Do they need approval from Congress to offer more money to candidates? How does that work if that's one of the big problems that they're running into? Yeah, so uh, they're they're they're. The salaries themselves, I do not believe, are set by VA. It's one of the government agencies, which is kind of fleeting my mind. I want to say it's, it's. Um, I'll come back to me. But anyways, <laughs> but they, they, you know, it's set on a scale basis. So you have GS employees. You have, uh, you know, and GS employees have a, a, a national federal scale uh, that essentially go from GS one to GS fifteen. Um, there's locality pay. So in in certain areas. Um, you get paid more than in other areas. Um, there are some uh, other scales within the Department of Veterans Affairs because you have things like doctors, right? And doctors, you know, tend to get paid extraordinarily higher than what you would see in the GS scale. I mean, I think yeah. the GS scale, you know, at GS 15, you're probably, you know, in the 150-ish range. Um, and that's as high as it gets before you go into SES, which is senior executive service, which are, you know, if you're thinking about a company, these are your CEOs of the company. Um, and, you know, their pay goes up, uh, you know, 
not a ton more, but quite a, quite a bit more. Right. Um, and, and doctors have their own skill based on numerous factors that, you know, helps VA retain doctors in comparison to the private sector that if they didn't have higher salaries, there's no way they'd be able to retain these folks. Um, with that said, um, certainly I think most of the, the, the clinicians, um, physicians at the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, if they were to go and to move into the private sector, they would probably receive larger salaries. Um, but there are a lot of reasons that physicians at the VA want to be at the VA. One is mission, right? I mean, you, you, you absolutely get an incredible opportunity to serve, uh, you know, people who, who really, you know, need high quality, oh, yeah. uh, focused healthcare. Another is, you know, a lot of doctors are really not a fan of American private healthcare, and that's fee-for-service healthcare, which is I come in, you know, you, you, it's like we're at Jiffy Lube, you know, you, <laughs> you, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the the oil, you, you ask for the oil change, I'm gonna propose you get the premium oil change, I want to run a bunch of tests that you probably don't need, uh, and we're gonna get you a new filter. And, um, you know, all those things that, you know, maybe you don't feel like you necessarily need. Um, sometimes maybe you actually do need those things and, you know, the doctor caught something that, you know, you didn't see. I mean, it's part of the reason you go right. to the doctor and get like an annual or whatever it may be and do some proactive screening. Those are all positive things. Um, but where it varies significantly from the healthcare that VA is able to provide is they really are able to take a whole health approach. They can look at, you know, when, when's the last time this guy got blood work done? Does, do we really need to, you know, send him down to get more blood? Probably not. We're probably good there. Um, you know, uh, Eric, uh, you know, here's some things that you can do to take better care of yourself. Um, in That's terms a long of, list for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is, is, is it allows, you know, I know when I go see my, my, my doctor um, at the VA, uh, you know, he's, he's much more able to kind of focus on my health as a human being versus, you know, just running through a, a tick list of tests um, and, and things that are at the end of the day going to run the bill up um, and, and get me more uh, billable, you know, I don't know if they call it billable hours in the, the, the doctor world, but, um, you know, all those things add up to more money. VA doesn't have that problem. The doctors come in, they're set at a salary. Um, and, and they're allowed to, frankly, you know, it gives them more levity in terms of the healthcare they provide. So I'm saying all those things to say, you know, this is certainly a huge issue. I've only kind of touched the tip of the spear in terms of some of these, uh, vacancies. Uh, the house veterans affairs committee is actually having a hearing on this on Thursday, uh, at 10 30 AM. If you want to check it out, you can find their website, just Google house veterans affairs committee, uh, should be an interesting hearing. Um, but it also kind of drives to the crux of some of the challenges we see with the private sector. Uh, you know, there are places where VAs actually have better specialty care than what you can find in the, the private sector because of, you know, huge shortages in that community overall. Yeah. But then there are cases where VA has huge specialty shortages, you know, like maybe they, they're down a cardiologist, a urologist, whatever it may be. And those things are in the private sector but they're paying extraordinary prices to, to outsource that healthcare to them. And if they could get a urologist or a cardiologist, uh, the VA would actually save money. More veterans would see those specialists in a timely manner. Um, but there, there, there are a whole host of issues here. But the big trend that we're seeing right now is that there seems to be a real decline in terms of filling positions at the Department of Veterans Affairs to the point where it's starting to look like it may be intended. And what that means is if 
those clinicians, those employees are not at the VAs. Um, they cannot see veterans, which means that we then, uh, you know, if we're not going to do that, we then have to push these veterans into the private sector um, to go see private you know, doctors. And what we've seen, according to a recent GAO report, is that is not necessarily resulting in veterans getting timelier care. So lots of problems. We've been speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets, here on the Tuesday edition of the Morning Briefing. Justin, we have less than a minute left, so not a lot of time to explain it, but the HillVets House, there are still openings for this fellowship that allows veterans to come in, learn the workings of Washington, D.C. I mean, it's paid for for their first four months. They get to essentially have a place to live and get food here in D.C. for free. If people are interested in finding out more about that, more about your organization in general, where can they go? Yeah, come check us out at www.hillvets.org. Org. Uh, find us on Twitter at HillVets, and uh, we've got a lot of information there about HillVets House uh, and how we're bringing veterans to D.C. who want to continue serving their nation. We're placing you in a congressional fellowship with a member of Congress or a senator, getting you trained up, housing you, giving you a small stipend, and the hope is uh, you stay here on Capitol Hill and continue to kick butt. More veterans on congressional staffs is certainly something that we need, and HillVets is working diligently to make that happen. On behalf of myself, Eric Dame, and your producer, Jake Hughes, want to thank you for joining us for today's edition of The Morning Briefing. And join us again tomorrow, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, for the first showing, and then replays at 11 and 4 every Monday through Friday. It's The Morning Briefing on Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.